Jeremiah Jacques, and this is The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. And I want to tell you a story today that takes place in a location that is exceptionally small, but also exceptionally fascinating. If you look at a map of Europe and zoom in on the North Atlantic Rim and the British Isles, and then zoom in even more on the northwestern seaboard of Scotland, then you'll see a cluster of Scottish islands that have come to be known as the Hebrides. There are the Inner Hebrides, which hug the west coast of Scotland, and there are the Outer Hebrides, a little further to the west. And some of these islands of the Hebrides are not to be sneezed at. They're pretty substantial in size, even going up to several hundred square miles of territory. But others are very small, just a fraction of that size in some cases less than half of one square mile. And one of the smaller ones, but certainly not the smallest, is Rasse. It's just 12 miles long and two to three miles across in most places. And on Rasse, there are several small settlements and communities. On the southern tip, you have the ferry terminal at Suisnish. A little to the north of there is Inverarish, the largest settlement on the island. Then continuing northward, there's Haleg, and then Glaim, and then Brochel. And then, about two miles to the north of Brochel, in what is considered North Rasse, is the settlement of Arnish. This tiny settlement of Arnish is the epicenter of this story. For generations and generations, a family named the Maclouds lived in Arnish. The family business was stonemasonry, the men were called dry stone dikers, and they were also crofters, which means they worked small farms. The McLeods were not the only ones living in Arnish, but it looks like they may have lived there longer than all the other crofters in that settlement. This is noteworthy because crofting and diking and making a living by any other way on North Rasse is not easy. Steep hills roll from coast to coast at this part of the island. They're bare in places, and in others they're covered by thick heather and stunted birch and black peat bogs. Bold granite crags jut up at irregular intervals, and the hills are serrated by shallow crevasses and interrupted by small locks. There are just small patches of cultivable ground here and there. The land was not easy, to wring a profit from. So the McLeods of Arnish were a tough and persevering and resourceful people. They had to be to have thrived in Arnish for generation after generation. One evening in the winter of 1962, the youngest of the McLeods at that time, 12-year-old Julie, was trying to return home from school. She had recently started attending school in Portree on the neighboring and much larger Isle of Skye. The Scottish government had made it compulsory for all students to attend a specialized secondary school from ages 11 and a half or 12 up until age 15. And in a great number of cases, this required the young students to leave their parents' homes and to live at the school miles and miles away. That was the situation for Julie. She was only able to visit home on holidays, and the occasional long weekend. And getting back home for those rare visits was no easy task. 
She had to take a ferry across the sea from Portree on the Isle of Skye to southern Rasse. From there, she would have to be driven north up to the Brochel settlement. And at Brochel, the road ended. So she would have to walk the remaining two miles to get to her parents' croft in Arnish. Well, on the winter night in question, there was heavy snowfall. She walked northward with her suitcase. She walked and walked. But in the storm and in the dark, she began to lose her bearings. And she knew that if she got lost, her life would be in grave danger. So she took shelter in the lee of a rock. Within a few hours, her father, Callum MacLeod, found her and brought her home. Julie was okay, but Callum was understandably upset by this event. He had never been in agreement with the government removing his only child from him for school, especially at such a young age. And it only made matters worse that the same government refused to make a road from Brochel up to Arnish so that his daughter could safely get to and from Arnish in the rare times that allowed for visits. This grievance about the absence of a road was not a new one in 1962. The people of Arnish had actually been asking for decades to have a road built that would connect their community with the rest of Rasse. Thirty years earlier, back in 1931, the people of Arnish submitted a formal petition to the local county council road committee. Cars had recently been invented and were starting to appear on the southern, more heavily populated part of the island, but the dawning of the car age would not shine on the north of the island. Even though the MacLeods and others in Arnish paid the same road taxes as the island's other residents, the government built no roads to their communities. They were cut off. So they submitted this petition to Inverness County Council, in 1931, and waited for a reply. The county council shook their heads and tossed the matter toward another local government entity, the Sky District Council. Well, the Sky Council returned it like a ping-pong ball right back at the Inverness County Council. After it had bounced back and forth a few times, the correspondence struck the net between the two and fell to the floor and rolled out of sight. In the years after that, the people of Arnish submitted several more petitions to these and other government entities. They were all denied or ignored. And the economy on the isolated north of the island stagnated. So the people started leaving Arnish and other parts of North Rasse. A man named John Nicholson was one of the residents of North Rasse at this time. He described the exodus to a journalist named... Roger Hutchinson. Nicholson said, You could see people gradually drifting away, losing heart, and not only losing heart, but losing a sense of the future because there was no work. There was perhaps a future in the north end of Rasse if there was a road from Brachel to Arnish, but there wasn't, so the population gradually hemorrhaged. So one by one, the families left North Rasse, some to the south of the island, some to Canada, Australia, South Africa, or the United States. By the time Julie McLeod got stuck in that blizzard on that dark winter night in 1962, 
The McLeod family was one of just four or five families living on the entire north end of the island. Callum McLeod picked up several jobs around this time. He became the sole postman for North Rasse, which meant picking up the mail at Brochel three times per week and carrying it on his shoulder along the broken footpath for miles and miles to deliver it to the scattered residents in the north. He also became the boatman in charge of the lighthouse that was on the very northern tip of Rasse. That meant he would spend a long day every two weeks picking up the various lighthouse keepers on the Isle of Skye, miles away, and boating them up to the lighthouse at the tip of Rasse, and then going back to Skye again to bring back the crew that had just finished their shift in the lighthouse. Callum did all of this at the same time as he cared for his 80 sheep, 14 cattle, and all of the crops of the McLeod Croft. But even though he was busy, he took the time in 1962, after that winter night, to write several columns in local newspapers, decrying the government's failure to provide a road to the north of the island, and also writing up another formal request to the Inverness County Council. The council told him that since the terrain was so irregular in North Rasse, building the road from Brochel to Arnish would cost 30,000 pounds, which in today's money would be about 600,000 pounds, or $800,000. Well, Callum had had enough. He was tired of witnessing the stagnation and depopulation of North Rasse. He was tired of his daughter being cut off from him and his wife, and from the land that had been his family home for generations and generations. So he decided to build the road himself. After setting that noble goal, Callum's next step was to educate himself in the craft of road building. So he bought a book. It was a book by his fellow Scotsman Thomas Aitken, who had formerly been the president of the country's Road Surveyor Association. The book was 440 pages long, and it was called Road Making and Maintenance, a Practical Treatise for Engineers, Surveyors, and Others. It was a thoroughly detailed manual written specifically for those who wanted to build motorways where motorways had not previously existed, and went through everything from surveying to engineering to the management of a crew of laborers. This last bit was not really relevant for Callum, since he was the entire crew on his project. But besides that, for his purposes, the book was perfect. He had only gone to school up until age 14, but Callum had been an avid reader his whole life. He devoured the book and then set out to acquire the tools that the book had said he would need. A shovel, a spade, a line and reel for measuring, a pickaxe, a sledgehammer, and a wheelbarrow. The line and reel were the first tools to be used. Before any digging could happen, Callum had to plot out the best possible course for the road. And in a place with terrain like that of North Rasse, the surveying part of the process is of vital importance. The book about road making said this about the route planning process. 
The selection or location of country roads is carried out by making an examination of the tract of country to be traversed, so as to determine the best routes and gradients for the proposed line of communication. The most direct or shortest practical routes between two points at once suggests itself, but this in every case must be governed by the natural features of the surface of the country. Existing roads in hilly districts in most parts of the country have to a great extent been laid down with only one object in view, namely that of a direct line. The great sacrifice thus entailed through steep gradients in the cost of transportation is a serious one. So in other words, it may be faster and less expensive to build a road that runs straight up a steep slope, but they're often impractical because cars can't climb those stretches of the road. So it's better to make the road twice as long with a gentle and winding slope. Well, Callum spent several months meticulously plotting the optimal course through the rocky terrain of North Resse. In most cases, he was able to wind the course around those outcrops of granite that periodically jutted up through the terrain. In a couple of spots where no other option was available, he had to get the assistance of the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries to bring dynamite to help him blow up some of those huge outcrops of granite. The road that Callum eventually planned out was 12 feet in total width and 9 feet inside of its outer drains and dry stone edges. Once the route was finally plotted, Callum started to clear the wind-blasted land. In many places, it was made up of quaking peat bogs. For other long stretches, it was blanketed with bent hazel and stunted birch and dense heath and all kinds of other vegetation. So one by one, this man, who was then 54 years old, wrestled those trees, roots and all, out of the ground. After clearing a given section, he could lay the foundations for the road there. This was the lion's share of Callum's labor. For each stretch, he would first make what he called a tram line of stones to mark the road's outer edges. And then he would fill in that 12-foot area between the two edges with more medium-sized stones and then place smaller stones in between those medium-sized ones. These were not stones that he was ordering truckloads of to be delivered where he needed them. He quarried all of this rock himself from the ground and from the cliffs, just with his pickaxe. And then with his sledgehammer, he would crush it into stones and gravel of the various sizes that he needed. And then with his wheelbarrow, he would haul it to the road. He had to complete this incredibly arduous process for every square inch of this nearly two-mile-long road. And for many stretches where the road hugged the coast, he also had to build holding walls so that careless drivers would not accidentally drive their cars off the cliffs into the sea below. He also had to install a number of culverts deep under the foundation of the road. There were brooks winding through the region from one lock to another, and the culverts had to be installed to give these brooks safe passage under the road. 
He also installed sheep and cattle grids along the various fence lines, which kept the livestock from all the different townships separated. Callum worked through all kinds of weather, and the weather in Rasse can be quite extreme. The wind is exceptionally notorious. Scotland is said to be the windiest part of Europe, with the Hebrides being the windiest part of Scotland. In Rasse, there are 60 to 70 days each year with wind speeds greater than 30 miles an hour. And Rasse endures an average of 35 days each year of true gale force winds. This means wind speeds of at least 39 miles per hour sustained for at least 10 minutes. So it is among the very windiest inhabited places on the whole planet. Working in wind like that especially during the winter months, is arduous and it can be demoralizing. But to build his road, Callum worked through the best and worst of the weather for more than 10 years. In the words of Roger Hutchinson, Callum worked hunched up against the storm, bent by the gale, chilled by the cold, sweating in the unaccustomed sun, and soaked by unpredicted showers of sleet sometimes all on the same day. But the weather would never defeat him. The weather would change and go elsewhere. Callum McLeod would not. From the ages of about 54 years old to 64 years old, Callum worked on the road tirelessly. And remember, it was not his only job. He kept on maintaining his livestock and his crops. He kept on harvesting peat to burn as fuel for his family. He kept working as postman for North Rasse. And during this time, he was also promoted to become the light keeper at the lighthouse on the northern tip of Rasse. That meant he was stationed in the lighthouse for four weeks at a time and then back on his croft for two weeks. Callum really was an unstoppable worker. But the same could not be said for his tools. At one point, he was prying a boulder out of the hillside to make room for his road. And his crowbar took purchase of it, and he wiggled and heaved. And finally, the huge rock came loose from the hollow that it had occupied since the Jurassic Age. It rolled down the hill, made one large bounce, and landed directly on top of his wheelbarrow, instantly crushing it flat. And that wheelbarrow wasn't the only casualty of his work. By the time he had finished the road, Callum had worked his way through three wheelbarrows, one crowbar, six pickaxes, six shovels, five sledgehammers, and four spades. The largest single rock he moved has been estimated to weigh nine tons. That's about 18,000 pounds. He used a jack to lift it a few inches off the ground, and then he filled in that space under it with buckets of small stones. And then from its new base, he jacked it up again a few more inches, and then he packed the new space with stones again. Then he jacked it up again and filled it in with stones again. He repeated this process dozens of times until this massive nine-ton boulder finally tumbled down the cliff 
and sunk defeated into the sea. One day when he was digging the road's foundation, he was digging about 18 inches below the surface and Callum overturned a perfectly preserved Neolithic axe head made of rock entirely unlike anything that occurs naturally on Rasse, and still with a functional cutting edge and everything. Callum sent it off to Edinburgh for archaeological assessment. But most days were not so eventful. For most of the days of those 10-plus years that it took to complete the nearly two miles of road, it was just Callum versus the earth. Attacking the cliff face with his pickaxe, bringing down a shower of rock fragments, gathering those rocks into the wheelbarrow that he had made himself out of cast iron, and then hauling the rocks to the road, pouring them onto the surface, packing them into place until it was level. And then building a holding wall on the seaward side of the road, using the ancient McLeod family business of dry stone masonry, jigsaw precision in placing the massive stones together, joining them and slotting them into place. Callum was not an unusually large man. He was only five feet, eight inches tall. But even in his mid-sixties, he would stoop down and lift up hundred-pound rocks with great dexterity and place them with precision into his holding walls or into his road's foundations. And he did this foot after foot, slope after slope, yard after yard, cliff after cliff, for almost two miles of road, until the road was finally done. And then finally, Arnish was connected to the south of the island, where the various government bureaucracies had stumbled and dodged and failed to take responsibility. This one man accomplished something monumental. In the end, he had worked for more than 10 years on the road, and Callum MacLeod did not earn even one penny for this arduous work that provided such an invaluable service to Arnish and the rest of North Rasse. But with this work, he left his manifesto written in stone on his ancient people's land. A road that's two miles long may not sound like much, but the strikingly steep climbs and descents, the boggy moorland, and the need to skirt the cliffs above the rocky inlets, all meant that this road was a truly epic work of engineering. Sometime around 1975, Callum bought a Land Rover and drove up and down the road from Arnish to Brochel up and down that road that he had built with his hands. In his characteristic Gaelic humor, he sometimes called his road the Autobahn. He had to stop at Brochel, though, when he was driving on it, because that's where the state-maintained road began, and Callum had never taken his driving test, and he never earned his license for as long as he lived. And this clearly shows that the road was for the whole community. It wasn't just for Callum. 
It was for Arnish and for all of North Rasse. By 1982, the state could no longer deny the excellent work that Kellum had done, and they could no longer deny requests to pave the road. By the end of that year, it was a smooth and easily navigable road. Single track, but with about 20 different passing places built in to permit the safe passage of northbound and southbound traffic. The following year, Callum was awarded the prestigious British Empire Medal at an elaborate ceremony in South Resse. Queen Elizabeth II sent her apologies for not being able to attend that ceremony. In the years that followed, the National Theatre of Scotland co-produced a stage play about Callum's Road, and he was commemorated in a song by the famous Scottish folk band Capricaley. That's the song that you hear playing right now. Callum MacLeod died in 1988 at the age of 76 while he was out working his craft. But Arnish lives on, and thanks to his road, there are small communities thriving there and in other parts of North Rasse today. You can actually see these communities, and you can see the road that Callum single-handedly and painstakingly built if you go to Google Earth. It's, uh, it's really astounding to be able to zoom in and out and see how unforgiving the terrain there is. I've posted a link to the Google Earth coordinates on Twitter. If you go to twitter.com and search for Jeremiah Jacques, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S, it should be the first or second tweet in the timeline there. So if you just click on that and take a look at the, the island and the terrain on the island, I think it'll really help you to see the magnitude of Callum's accomplishment. Well, we are coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. We really appreciate you listening today, and we hope that you'll send us your comments by emailing tsar at kpcg.fm. I'd like to thank journalist Roger Hutchinson, who lives on Resse and who is friends with Callum McLeod and who wrote an excellent book about him called Callum's Road. Much of the information for this episode today came from that book. And if you give it a read, I think you'll find that it's a real gem of a book. I'd also like to thank Donald Shaw and the rest of Capricaley for granting us permission to play their song Callum's Road for this episode. Finally, I'd like to apologize to any Scottish listeners we may have for the myriad mispronunciations I'm sure to have made with many of these names. I'll leave you today with the words of the Scottish artist and calligrapher, Campbell Sandylands. Callum MacLeod, a man, road builder, and writer, could be described as quintessentially Gaelic, the flag bearer of past generations, not folding to bureaucracy, but building a road with heroic determination in spite of what the critics said and in spite of the bureaucrats. <laughs>